0: And so God warns them through the prophets again and again and again and again, and they do not heed him. And so in 608, the Babylonian Empire comes to rule over much of the Mideast, including Israel. And for the next 70 years, Babylon rules, and Jerusalem is pummeled, just as God had promised before it happened through the prophet Jeremiah. Around 604, Daniel, probably a teenager, is taken from Judah, and he's sent to Babylon to be a servant of the king of Babylon. Daniel is super gifted. He's brilliant. He's probably handsome. He's probably very strong. And he has this spiritual gift of being able to see visions and interpret dreams. And so the king brings him into his court to be his advisor. And he's a very high official. And he serves the king of Babylon for decades. For 70 years he serves the king of Babylon. And after 70 years, just as God said, Babylon is conquered by Persia. Isaiah had predicted this 100 plus years before it happens. In Isaiah 44, verse 24 through 45, verse 4, listen to what the Lord says. I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited to the cities of Judah, you shall be built. Now, God is saying this before they've even been destroyed. But he's seeing their destruction and saying, I'm going to build them back up. Who says of Cyrus... He is my shepherd and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Thus says to the Lord, to his invo- anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. For Jacob my servant's sake and Israel my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God beside me. God is pleading with the Jewish people. Listen to me. I am God. Obey me. Follow me. Trust me. I am God. And and here, I'll do this. I'll tell you a century plus before he comes, the first name of the king of Persia, who will free you from Babylon, who you haven't been conquered by yet, I'm going to send Babylon in a little while. They're going to conquer you for 70 years. Then I'm going to send you a rescuer, a deliverer. His name is Cyrus. He's not born yet. But that's going to be his name. Like Queen Elizabeth. Like Prince Charles. This was King Cyrus. And Isaiah names him Cyrus. And that's what his name is. He comes from the Macedonians. That line. And he he begins to run through the Mideast, through the Persian kingdom. So we have Isaiah naming Cyrus, and now Daniel sees an emperor in his lifetime named Cyrus arise and conquer Babylon. And he's not just excited about Cyrus and, you know, oh gosh, that's what God said. God said Cyrus would be the vehicle by which Israel would be delivered back to the land. And so he knows from Jeremiah when this exile not only would be ended by this guy, he knows when it will be ended. Because Jeremiah 29.10 says, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. So Daniel is paying close attention to the word of God, and he is anxious for God to fulfill his promise, just as he said, and take the Jewish people who are in captivity in Babylon, and who have now been, which has now been overthrown by Cyrus, and he's, he's asking him to please bring us back to the land. And this is where we find him in chapter nine. So let's start there in chapter nine. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahusorus, of Midian descent, Pat, did you have a corrective for me on that? All right, I'm, I'm gonna do my best. Okay, thanks. Um, who, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans? Chaldeans is synonymous with Babylonians. Okay, so when you see Chaldeans, Chaldeans, it's, ba- it's Babylonians. In the first year of his reign, it doesn't say Cyrus because he's, he's ruling the Babylonians for Cyrus. Cyrus ruled everywhere at that time. But he had viceroys. He had s- second lieutenants who would rule certain areas. And that's what Darius' job was. And he says, I, Daniel, observed In the book, the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Notice what Daniel thinks about scripture. This is really key for the rest of our passage this morning, and it's really important for you regarding the word of God. Daniel hears God say through Jeremiah, In 70 years, Babylonians' rule will be over. And so what does Daniel think? 70 years is a poem. It's a a number for perfection and completion. Well, it is those things. (laughs) 70 has a really, really profound importance. But Daniel says, God said 70 years. So, God said Cyrus. So, (laughs) I see Cyrus. Cyrus. I see 70 years. I'm going to ask God to do what he said he'd do in 70 years by the hand of Cyrus. Daniel is taking the word of God very seriously. I mean, he's not calling a 10-headed dragon a 10-headed dragon. If you look at the book of Daniel, he sees things like gold statues and animals, and he knows those are symbols. But he knows this is not a symbol. He knows this is 70 years. And so he says, God this precision, this precise promise you've given of 70 years, please bring it to pass. And he begins to pray to the Lord to bring to pass what the Lord has promised. But he does it in a spirit not of demand, but a spirit of humility. And I can't go through all the prayer and and, and like unpack it all, but I do want to read this prayer in full. It's a long prayer. This is Daniel's prayer to the Lord Yahweh. So I gave my attention to the Lord to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame. As it is this day, to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, and all the countries to which you have driven them, because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you, open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, For we have rebelled against him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. To walk in his teachings. Which he set before us through his servants the prophets. Indeed all Israel has transgressed your law. And turned aside. Not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us. Along with the oath. Which is written in the law of Moses. The servant of God. For we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words, which he had spoken against us and our rulers who ruled us, to bring on us great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come to us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done. But we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day. We have sinned. We have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now... Our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, O my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel's prayer is full of the character of God. Daniel praised scripture, the scriptures he had. He prays according to the Mosaic Covenant. All the commandments that God had given Israel. All the warnings he had given them. All the calamities he had promised to them if they disobeyed him. Daniel knows all this and he prays it back to God. But he also prays according to the God's glory. The glory of his goodness, his compassion, his love, his mercy. Daniel prays the Bible. And I think that's just I, I, I'm not saying just, just pick a passage and say it, in some magic formula. But Daniel knows the heart of God through God's word. And he, he cries out to God according to that heart in God's word. He also knows God's promise. He doesn't say, oh, 70 years, it's all good. You're just going to do it. He, he has a sense from the Holy Spirit that he is being brought into the work of God. That his prayers are ordained by God to do the work that God has ordained to do. When we come upon promises in Scripture, it's right for us to say these promises in Scripture towards me, for, towards my children, towards my husband, towards my wife, It's right for us to say to God, God, fulfill these promises. This is who you are. Do this thing. When Paul says, he who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus, it's right to plead God. God, complete the work you started in me. You get the point. But scripture is an unfailingly rich and I should say safe place to direct our prayers back to God. But now something shocking happens. The angel Gabriel appears and he brings an answer to Daniel. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord, that's Yahweh, whenever you see those capital letters L-O-R-D, before Yahweh my God, for the holy hill of my God While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, and he's referring to the the vision he just had in chapter 8, where he saw Gabriel the first time, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me, saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision I'm about to give you, is what he's saying. So again, Gabriel had come to Daniel in chapter 8. Daniel calls him a man. He doesn't call him the Hebrew word for man, which would have meant he's literally just a man. It, it, it just means the appearance of a man. But in chapter 8, I think you can see that he, he looks more interesting than the appearance of a man. And here, Gabriel, Daniel apparently sees him flying in. We don't know if there are wings or if, if he just had a, the image of a, of a body that just swooshed in with a beam of light. But it was something unusual and something very powerful. And now he comes again, and he comes to give, look what he comes to give, insight, understanding. He wants Daniel to consider and understand what he's about to say. And this is important for you guys for the next half hour or so. (laughs) See, Gabriel is not interested in bringing Daniel just simply confusing words that he can't make any sense of. But this stuff that he's about to say, it has to be considered well. Daniel says, now Daniel's a smart guy. He's a humble guy. You know, you, but Gabriel has to tell him, you're going to have to really consider this. But if you do, you will understand the vision. And since Daniel wrote this down, and since God has preserved it in Scripture, we can, we can assume that God doesn't desire to simply confuse us today either that he wants us to consider and he wants us to understand. He wants us to benefit from it. So let's hear the message that Gabriel has to bring Daniel. Seventy sevens have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy Daniel has been waiting 70 years so that the Jews could return to Jerusalem. Now Gabriel tells him of seventy sevens. The word seven here is is, sometimes it's translated weeks, but it it isn't weeks the way we think of that. It's literally sevens. It's a heptad. It's like a dozen. Like you'd hear the word of dozen. Well, a dozen what? You have to apply to something: a dozen eggs, a dozen pieces of bread, a dozen speeding tickets. This word literally just means seven units of something. And so in the context of 70 years, Gabriel comes and tells him, 70 years are almost up, but I'm going to tell you about 70 times seven. And what is going to happen over this 70 units of seven or 490 something, right? Because 70 times seven is 490. What's going to happen is, This is to finish the transgression, make an end of sin. That's pretty synonymous to to my ears. To make atonement for iniquity. Something is going to not just stop sin, but it's going to atone for it. To bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal up or fulfill or finish vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. So Gabriel lets Daniel know that God has a calendar not just for 70 years to get back into the land but for 70 times 7 to accomplish what sounds like everything that could be accomplished in God's heart for the world, right? I mean, what's missing? Atone for wickedness, bring in everlasting righteousness, make an end of sin, seal up, fulfill, finish vision and prophecy, anoint the most holy, which is hard to, quite, hard to understand. Now, now I believe, as does everyone I've studied my whole life, from being a Catholic kid to being a Protestant, a cross-reformed, you know, covenant, pre-millennial, millennial, that these are units of seven. They're units of years. There's, there's nobody that I've read that's seriously arguing anything different, and I think you'll be able to see that. Um, there, there's clear evidence inside Daniel. We think about the immediate context of 70 years. and in, in other places in the book and in the biblical prophetic literature, as well as plain logic, I I think you'll see that this is what Gabriel means. Now I think there's a reason why Gabriel doesn't say simply years, and he says sevens. I I, I think he's trying to say, well we'll get to that in a second, I think he's trying to say the same units, the same units, the same units, and that does have an important bearing. And now Gabriel unpacks this, 70 times seven, and listen, is what I kind of warned you about in my email on Friday. This is, this is different preaching for me. It's different hearing for you guys, probably, at least for me anyway. This is going to get rigorous. It, it's going to get like, I, you're going to be tempted to want to just tap out. And just be like, I, ah. <laughs> but try to hang with me here because this is miracle stuff. Like it really is. One thing I want to say at the start is, We know from the language that Daniel was written, that Daniel was written far, far before Christ. Centuries before Christ. That the language is language in keeping with the Aramaic of the exile period. That language changed soon after the exile period, as I understand it. And it wasn't, even, it, it wasn't like the, the Aramaic from 200 years before Christ. It was an ancient Aramaic. That's what Daniel's written in. We also know that Daniel was written centuries before Christ for a far more obvious and easier reason. Around the year 270, 250, 240 BC, the world was speaking Greek so much and there were so many Jews in different parts of the world that a group of Jews came together in Alexandria, Egypt, to write a greek old testament and you've probably heard this name before it's called the septuagint or the lxx septuagint lxx just means 70 has nothing to do with our 70 here but it just means 70 rabbis got together a committee of 70 put together the greek old testament that happened in if i'm not mistaken you know somewhere around 250 bc that happened around 300 years before the cross. And there's no one who contests that. Jewish, Christian, Muslim scholars, the Septuagint is set in stone as a historical document. Your New Testament, Old Testament prophecies, most of them are in the are coming from the Septuagint. The New Testament was written in Greek, and, and they read the Septuagint. So when they quote the Old Testament, most of the time they're quoting the Greek Old Testament. My point is we have very, very strong evidence. There's no real reason to doubt that Daniel was written hundreds of years before Jesus Christ, whether you were a Christian or an atheist. People that I, I, I don't think I know of anybody who seriously doubts that. So, here we go, okay? Gabriel's about to elaborate on what these 77s are about. Verse 25. And, and just to kind of hype this, I think there's something to this. I heard one teacher say, I've, and I've heard it elaborated on by different people, that this is the most miraculous verse in the Bible. I mean, you know, you, you, it's like, which kid is your favorite kid, right? <laughs> but, but yeah, there's something in, amazing going on here. Verse 25. So you are to know and discern, like you, you need to hear this and you need to understand this, that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. He's making Daniel work a little bit. But that's what this says, okay? So now we can get excited because we see that until Messiah, the prince, but Messiah was a word, it means anointed, anointed one. And it's used for different kings. It's even used for Cyrus in Isaiah. But what's strange is here is it's not used in, in conjunction with any other term. It's not like Messiah Cyrus or Messiah David. or it, It's just Messiah. And then comma in Hebrew it would be Messiah, a prince or the prince or the ruler, Nagid. M- Mishach, Nagid. Ooh, now you're all impressed. But... The point is, this is a unique way of using the Messiah. It's, it's saying, in effect, some people say that, da- that Gabriel is saying, this is the Messiah, period. Like, here he is. And if you go to the Septuagint and you read this, it literally says, 70 years, you know, uh, to d- 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 decree, to restore, rebuild Jerusalem Until the Christ. Until the Christ. And so this passage fed into this anticipation sense that was abroad and filling the land around the time of Jesus' birth. People were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for the Messiah. And and this was a key reason, I believe, as I've studied this more and more, is this passage. So Gabriel says there's going to be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Okay, so let's look at a slide right here. Go, go to the story. So Daniel, Gabriel says, So you're to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree, that means a command, to restore rebuild Jerusalem, remember it's devastated right now, until Messiah the prince or the ruler, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. So let's assume right now that they're years, just like everybody seems to think. Seven sevens is 49 years, seven sevens. Times seven years is 49 years. 62 sevens is 434 years. 69 sevens. That's what you get with seven. 62 equals 69. Everybody follow me so far? You get 483 years. Let's go to the next slide. So, Gabriel declares a 483-year period between the decree to rebuild Jerusalem and the appearance of the Messiah when the Messiah comes to Jerusalem. And remember, all of this prophecy has to do, there are many prophecies that that have to do with other nations and and the Gentiles. This prophecy has to do with your city and your people. This is a prophecy for Jewish people that has ramifications for all of us, but it is a prophecy about Jewish people. So he's saying, your Messiah will come from the decree, 483 years later. And notice that, that, it's divided, that he's divided up these 483 years into two pieces. One piece is seven years, and the other piece is, the, the other piece is, I'm sorry, one piece is seven sevens, and the other piece is 69 sevens, right? And we saw that the, on the slide before. Go back, one slide, go back. You see that? Seven sevens, he divides it in sixty-two sevens and go forward. And you can see right there in the in, in the passage that um that he does that. And his next phrase is it will be rebuilt again, it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. And so most scholars agree that this first seven sevens or forty-nine years is the period by which Jerusalem will be rebuilt. This is the time of Nehemiah, the time of Ezra, the time of trouble. That's what he says, even in a time of distress. And if you read Nehemiah and Ezra, you'll know there was a lot of trouble trying to build Jerusalem back up again. But he says it will be built again. And so we're assuming, and there's a lot of reason to assume that he's describing a 49-year period because from what I read historically, that's about how long it took to build the city back up. And then Daniel goes on, or Gabriel goes on, to the 62 sevens that are added to that okay right because he broke it up into seven and 62 so now he's going to talk about what's going to happen with the next 62 sevens and here's what he says and let's go let's go oh y- yeah this is where where, where we're going to take a little bit of a of a uh, detour dive okay let's go forward one slide We need to ask an important question here if we get back in Daniel's shoes. And the important question to ask is, what kind of years is Daniel talking about? What kind of years is Gabriel speaking? What kind of years does Gabriel know Daniel's going to hear if he's going to do the math? So I need to talk about these years because when we're dealing with ancient languages and cultures, we run into the issues of different kinds of calendars and differences with our own. Daniel, the Jews, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, did not use a 365-day calendar. The Jews used a kind of variable calendar that changes each year, but it was oriented around the moon cycles. And then every once in a while, they throw in extra months to make up for what the moon cycle doesn't do for solar years. But the ancient kingdoms around Daniel did that too. Egypt, Greece, Assyria, Babylon, they all used a system of 12-month of calendars with 30 days in them. A month was 30 days. That was their default number for a month, 30 days. This is what's often called a lunar calendar. It's a calendar oriented roughly around the moon. And so these cultures had months of 30 days, 12 months to make a year. And they'd, they'd make adjustments along the way. But if you asked, what's a month? What's a month to you? It's 30 days. And this is the way months were counted in Genesis, in the flood narrative. If you look at Genesis 7 and 8, five months equals exactly 150 days. Five months of 30 days each. And what's more interesting is if you go into Revelation, it looks like they're still doing that at the time that John writes. Because as he prophesies and sees, he uses 300, and he uses 30-day months. He talks about 42 months in Revelation, a period of of what he calls 1,260 days. If you divide 1,260 days by 42 months, you get 30-day periods. And, And what connects the tissue of Revelation to the tissues in Daniel is this common phrase that they both use for 42 months or 12,000, or one thousand two hundred sixty 60 days. It's this common phrase. It's called a time, a times, and a half a time. It means three and a half years. Because 42 months and 1,260 days, if you're using a, th- a 30-day calendar, is three and a half years. And So you see three and a half years in Revelation, and you see it in Daniel. And it's called a time, times, a half a time. One time, times, two is two. Times, plural, two, and a half a time. Three and a half. So it's not easy, but it's workable (laughs) to understand the unique language that's used in prophetic uh, scriptures. So there's different ways to do this. People use a solar calendar of 365 days. But, But let's use the internal evidence of Daniel and the internal evidence of Genesis and the internal evidence of Revelation and say, we're gonna we're gonna say, for argument's sake, that this is a 30-day month or 360 days, like like many people do. John MacArthur does it. So I'm n- I'm not like, tel- se- you know, doing something that's super way off the ranch here. This is a, a a very popular way to look at this, but it's not the only way. But let's say that the one of the things that's very commendable to me as a person who you know who's been taught to really care about context, the book you're in, is that. You you try to understand things in the book, by the book. You try to understand scripture by the scriptures around the scripture. So the internal evidence in Daniel, Genesis, and Revelation is pointing to 30-day months. So, let's allow for the sake of argument that the years are 30-day months or 360 days. What happens when we add 483 ancient lunar calendar years what happens when we add 483 <laughs> ancient lunar calendar years, these, these are the 69 sevens that Daniel says need to occur between the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the Messiah to, to a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. So another question we got to ask is, is, what's the decree? If you're super lost right now, would you just lift your hand up a little bit for me? Okay, I'm not going to look too long. <laughs> All right. There are several decrees to, to build the temple, but in Scripture, there's only one appeal to build the city. And, and by happenstance, it's a very specific date in that decree. Nehemiah 2, verses 5 through 8. Nehemiah, on, in the month of Nisan 445, he goes to the king... And he pleads for the resources and support to rebuild the city. Nisan 1, the beginning of that month, corresponds to March 14th, 445 B.C. So now we have a start date for the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. And it's March 14th, 445 B.C. If we take 483 years... Which contain in each year twelve months of three six of thirty days each. <laughs> Hold on. We end up with one thousand one hundred seventy-three thousand eight hundred and eighty days. We are almost done. Okay, that's what we have to add to March 14th, 445 B. C. In, in this interpretation. We have to add 173,880 days, okay? And and we're supposed to get to the, the Messiah, until the Messiah. Something should happen. If we go to Luke 3, which don't go there now, we have very good evidence that John the Baptist began baptizing around 29 AD. Because he started his ministry, it says, in the 15th year of Tiberius. Tiberius began his rule in 14 AD. So take 14 AD, add 15, you get to about 29 AD. So we have a pretty solid understanding of when John the Baptist starts baptizing people. Well, why is that important? Because Jesus begins his public ministry on the heels of John the Baptist. It's in that time frame. So, and we know that Jesus' ministry was around three and a half years. That's m- most people throughout history have agreed. When you look at the scriptures, you count the Passovers, he did about three and a half years, a time, times, and a time, of, of ministry. And that plays into understanding this prophecy for different schools of thought as well. And that's why a good estimate for the crucifixion is AD 32. AD 32. Okay? So if we go all the way back now to the decree of March 14th, 445 B.C., and we add these days, 173,880 days, what do we get to? This is what we get to. April six, AD 32, Palm Sunday. To the day. That is the day when Jesus Christ was officially and formally announced as the Messiah to Israel. Before that, don't tell him, don't tell him, don't tell him, My time's not yet come, my time's not yet come, my time's not yet come. It can't be this week, it can't be this month, it can't be this year, it can't be, it can't be suddenly on Palm Sunday, it's time. No holding back. This is the day when Jesus finally allowed himself to be fully publicly revealed to the whole city as the Messiah. He rides a donkey to fulfill Zechariah 9. The people chant out of Psalm 118, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a royal psalm for a king. And the Pharisees did not misunderstand it. They rebuked Jesus harshly for claiming to be the king of Israel. And for the first time, Jesus does not, in the face of anything, make any bones about it. I mean, there are other times where he gets into arguments. But in front of thousands of people, where he, he, he does attest, I and the Father are one. But now he's saying, I'm, in front of thousands of people probably, he's saying, this is it. I'm the king. I'm on the donkey. He says, if these people don't cry out for me, the rocks are going to cry out. I'm the king. And then as he moves into the city, he does something very dramatic. He he starts to cry. And he says to the city, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes For all the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, this is one calculation. There are other ways to get to different places that make a lot of sense. There are ways, as I said, to use a solar year of 365 days starting from a different decree and you get to AD 27. And a lot of people hold that view. And that's very credible. I I find this particularly uh, compelling, as I said, because of the internal evidence in Daniel 4 and in Revelation and in Genesis. Not as much as Revelation and Daniel, but because in that prophetic literature, I, I see compelling evidence for the kind of year, the kind of month that, that we used in this. But irregardless of that, the next part of Gabriel's words really just closed the case on all this. Like, like, 360 days or 365 days. What Gabriel says next is just, there's just nothing else to do except worship Jesus Christ. Because listen to what he says. Then after, this is verse 26 of Daniel 9, so it should be the next slide. It should say, then after the 62 sevens. Do you see it anywhere? Have you run out of slides, Pam? There's no more slides. Uh, go back. Okay, then go go way down. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to tell you what he says. That's too bad, but it's so the, the the you'll be able to pick it up. Verse 26. This is what Gabriel says. Then after the 62 sevens. Remember, he put seven sevens and then 62 sevens. The seven sevens were through the rebuilding. The 62 sevens are for the time until Messiah. And he says, after the 62 sevens, he says, the Messiah will be cut off. And that that Hebrew word, according to Moshe Rosen in a, a, a book about messianic prophecy, it is a violent and sudden end. He will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of a prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Do you hear that? So what Gabriel is saying 500 years before Jesus even takes a breath, he says after the Messiah appears, he will be cut off and have nothing and the people of a prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Messiah is cut off. That means cut off. He's stopped. He's taken away. Violently ended. Killed. Isaiah 53, by oppression and judgment he was taken away as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living. That's a prophecy 100 years or so before Daniel. Messiah will have nothing, Gabriel says. He'll have nothing. He is a Messiah. Remember this verses, This passage is for the Jews. It's about Jerusalem. It's about the city. It's about the temple. And in that context, Gabriel is telling Daniel who is a Jewish man hoping for the Jewish nation to flourish and return to prosperity, he says, with regards to the Messiah, he'll have nothing with you. He's a Messiah without a throne in Jerusalem. He's a king with a nation rejecting him. He's a ruler without people acknowledging him. In just a few years, they're gonna persecute, they're gonna kill Stephen, persecuting the Christians, they're gonna have to flee the city. And the people of a prince who is to come, Gabriel says, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. This happened in AD 70. The Roman general Titus came, he laid siege to Jerusalem, he destroyed the city, he destroyed the temple, leaving not one stone upon another. One historian wrote that if you walked into Jerusalem after Titus, you would say, where is it? Where? Where's the city, is there, was there a city here? Jesus said, he will not leave one stone upon another. And there's, there, there is absolute evidence that that's exactly what happened, literally. He raised the city to dust. Messiah is cut off and killed. He has no rule in the city. I'm sorry, that refers to the temple, the, the no stone left upon another, not the city. The Messiah is cut off and killed. He has no rule in the city. The city and the temple is destroyed. Gabriel predicts, <laughs> Gabriel's predicting this before the new temple's even built, before the city's even rebuilt. he's saying saying it's going to be destroyed before it's even rebuilt. So, we can say very confidently, whether it's 365, 360 days, that whoever the Messiah is, who's connected to all these things that God's going to do to atone for wickedness, bring in everlasting righteousness, put an end to sin, he had to come to the Jewish nation and present himself around 500 or so years after Daniel was given this prophecy, which was in 538 BC. And then after he presents himself, this Messiah had to figure out a way, he had to be rejected, and then after he's rejected, somehow the city and the temple, both not yet rebuilt, have to be destroyed again, which happened in AD 70. Can you guys think, can you help me out here? Can you think of anyone remarkable in world history that came to the Jewish people sometime between AD 1 and AD 70? maybe average it out about A.D. 33, he presents himself as the Messiah and then he's killed and then after that happens, the the temple's destroyed and the city, anybody come to mind? I mean, I think there's one guy. The final words after all that that Gabriel says are, believe it or not, they're the most controversial and this is where you get reformed and dispensationalists and um, millennials and amillennials and post-millennials. A lot of this, the engine fuel for all that stuff is in these verses. And the, city, the city's end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. Verse 27, and he, and the closest antecedent we have to he, is that prince who will come to destroy the city. He'll make a firm covenant with many for one seven. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and great offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. So there's, there's a tremendous desolation that's coming in the midst of the temple. And even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. I, I, I'm not going to go deep into this. You can study it yourselves. There are questions about whether this refers to Jesus putting an end to the temple sacrifices with his own sacrifice. Um, that's what many Reformed theologians take. I, th- I think that's very credible. Or whether it refers to a third temple that may be yet built, which Paul seems to allude to in Second th- Thessalonians 2, in which a man of lawlessness takes his seat and declares himself to be God. That is the tact that many pre millenniarians miller- m- take. Doesn't, you don't have to be a dispensationalist if you know about those words. At this point, I honestly don't know what to think. I, I lean towards the, the pre-millennial view because of the evidence in Paul and Revelation for another temple, because of Jesus' words about the abomination, uh, and, and because of these big things that have, that God says were going to happen to Jerusalem and to the nation. This, this, like, as we said in the beginning, this perfection that seems to be coming, that doesn't seem to be there yet for Israel— and and because of what Paul says about Israel in Romans 9, 10, 11. But I, 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 I'm not gonna break bread with anybody over that and you can have different views or really be, you know, some of you might be just like, I, I'm not ready to even get into this too deep and that's okay. But, but we can see clearly in this passage that there's enough compelling evidence to worship Jesus Christ. To, to worship God's power and sovereignty and, and without having all the answers. I, I mean, Like, what what more could he do? What more could God do to tell everyone in this world who, who can get to a Bible that the Messiah has come? The Jewish people who reject Messiah, they swear that, you know, the devout Jews, they swear that Daniel is a holy book. And God has told us that Jesus is coming and that after he comes, he'll be rejected and that the temple will be destroyed. That's over. That's their book. There's no Messiah to wait for. And, and I, I just, I just, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, as I've been thinking about applications for us, um, there, there I do have a few applications, but, but part of it is just the sense in which I, I hope that the Holy Spirit would just work in you. I feel like he's working in me, which is just kind of a, like an awe. Just an awe, a reverence. Like, th- this God is the God who knows the end from the beginning, who declares and then brings it to pass. He's the God who, who says it and then it comes to pass. He, he is the God who controls all of history. He is exactly what he says at the beginning when we, when we talked about Isaiah Behold, the former things have come to pass. I did them just like I said, and new things I now declare before they spring f- them forth. I tell you them, I am the only God. There's no book like this in the universe. The Quran doesn't have this. The, whatever book you want to put in, I'm not trying to beat up on Muslims. I'm just saying, this is the word of God, brothers and sisters. This is God. This is, you, you have met God today. He's real. He has disclosed himself to you so that you can know that he is God. He has given you enough evidence. And this is just one of many, many, many other prophecies. So a few application points. They're very broad, but I pray the Lord will speak to you through some of them. Uh, First is just know the time of your visitation. You know, that's what Jesus was so grieved about. You did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is who he says he is. He is the only Messiah that you will have. He is the only Savior that God will offer to you. He is the only way that God has for you to return to him and to be reconciled to him. He is the Messiah the world needs. He's the only Messiah the world has offered. And God was so passionate about You and the world knowing that he is the Messiah, that he has done everything he can do to tell you, literally spelling it out in in years when he's going to come. So let us worship him. Let Let us not harden our hearts when we hear his voice. Let us take him seriously. Let us cling to his promises. Let us heed his warnings. Let us depend on him and hope on him again and again and again. He is our only hope. He is the Messiah that God has offered to you, brothers and sisters, and to me. Know the time of your visitation. Next slide, please. God is in control of all of human history, including yours. We saw today that God's in control of human history. I hope you saw that today. I hope you're more convinced of that than when you walked in this morning. There are many other places to see it in Scripture. But God says about you that every day was written in his book before one of them came to be. He said that not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from his will. He is in control of your history. That doesn't mean presume on him, treat him licentiously. It means cling to him, depend on him, cast your cares on him, cast your burdens on him. Know that he cares about what's going on in your life. Know that he can act and that he is acting on behalf of you when you trust him. Know that he's not missed anything that's happened in your life. It's not out of control to him. And and do what David did with that. Cling to him. Cry out his promises back to him plead his commitments that he's made and his word to you back to him until you see them next application point his word is reliable all of it and what I mean by this is something I've kind of already said that what's interesting to me is that (laughs) you know when, when David when Daniel was was looking at Jeremiah and saying the time is coming the time is coming God said it over here there wasn't like an Old Testament that that everybody knew I mean Jeremiah had only been written like a a couple of decades before if not like a decade before and somehow Daniel got to it but the spirit of God in Daniel was able to look at Jeremiah and say "Ah, that's God that's God and uh, to a large degree there's I think there are other tools that the church fathers used and that that, the the Jewish rulers used but to a large degree that's how we have our canon it's the spirit of God inside the people of God affirming the word of God to people if you've ever read the gospel of Thomas if you're really a Christian and the spirit of God lives in you read the gospel of Thomas you will will be surprised that anybody could ever think that was the word of God I've read it it's a Gnostic gospel it's very, very foreign to my spirit when I read that. I I know it's not the Lord. When you know someone, when you truly know them, you can tell, the sound of their voice, their inflection, you can tell when something's wrong or different about them, you can tell when they're drunk, right? You can tell it's not them, it's not who they are. There's lots of good proofs for why the Word of God is the Word of God, like there's brain evidence, intellectual evidence, there's archeological evidence, there's unity of scripture evidence but there's no substitute for the Holy Spirit in you. That's why biblical interpretation is never an issue of simply the intellect. It's an issue of being near the Lord. It's an issue of, of having a walk with him, that you're near him. That's how you most of all understand that it is him. But if, if you are near him, if you're saved, there's, there's a part of your heart that knows this is his word. It's all reliable. It's all reliable, not just Daniel. Daniel has screamed out to your intellects hopefully today. There's something real happening here. God knows what's up. But, but all the scriptures are given to us to feed off of and to lean on and depend on. Be in the scriptures. Be in prayer with the scriptures. Someone has said that th- the less we're in prayer, the less we want to pray. The less we're in God's word, the less we want God's word. That is so true in my life, in my experience. The less I'm with God's people in my church family, the less I want to be with God's people in my church family. The things of God, the, the more that we separate ourselves from them, the less appealing they become to us. But the opposite's also true. The more you are in God's word, the more likely you're going to want to be in God's word. The more you're in prayer with the Lord, the more likely you're going to want to be in prayer with God. The more you stay with your people, with God's people that he's given you in your church family and cleave to them, as he's called you to, the more you're going to want to. And so, depend on him. Depend on him chiefly in his word and in prayer. And then the last application is this. He is coming back. I've always personally found the second coming of Christ to be a bit of an intellectual challenge. I feel like all the science fiction fantasy movies I've seen have kind of, like, cliched it for me in a sense. Like, I I just can't imagine anything more spectacular than seeing Superman, like, chase Zod through Metropolis and Man of Steel and, like, like go through like 78 buildings in Metropolis and then knock down half of them, you know, and and have the explosions and lights and see these guys do stuff with their eyes and beams. I'm just like, how, or like how much more spectacular could it be like to see Godzilla, you know what I mean? Like coming out of the ocean, then Mothra, like the new one, you know, where the CGI is really good. Like it just feels like Steven Spielberg and Jerry Buckheimer, these guys have outdone what I could visualize the second coming being. But I think they're getting their cues, like intuitively from something. <laughs> like I do think that we know there is a, a glorious thing. You know, when we when we drive and there's in Frederick and you see the clouds on the mountains of Frederick. I was it, that was yesterday for me. I was, I was driving through southern Virginia and into Frederick and I, I would pass these mountains and the sky would open up and the, sh- light would shine on the mountain and it was just the most beautiful thing. And something inside my my heart just said God is there. You know, and I know He's literally. Like everywhere, but like it was like there's something about that that's important. <laughs> the light, the cloud, the glory. And God uses that language about Jesus' return, and, and I think it's a literal thing. <laughs> as the light, lightning strikes in the east and you see it as far as the west, so will be it the Son of Man. You will see him coming on the clouds of glory. There will be disturbances in the heavens. The seas will be roaring. Jesus uses these words. I don't think they're poems. The angel said he will come back just as he left. Physically, he's coming back. Well, I, when I read Daniel 9 and I read these prophecies and the certainties, of it just gives me like just a much stronger hope that this is real, that God knows what he's doing. There's a reason why we're waiting. Jesus said, The master, the servants will say, the master is taking a long time coming back. Peter said, God is not slow as some count count slowness. There's an anticipation in scripture that, that this might be a long time, but God is in control of history, and he is coming back. So, encourage yourselves, encourage one another with these kinds of texts that help you really believe that, that help you really get your teeth into that reality that it's happening, that history is taking the course just like he said it would be. I wish we had more time because I, I, I would love to talk more about how that last part of Daniel, it, it correlates so powerfully with what Jesus said in Matthew 24 about the, the days between his leaving and his coming back, that they'd be filled with war and famine and pestilence and earthquakes and nation against nation and persecutions. And I think Jesus described the entire church age in that passage. And I think that's what Daniel is doing. That until Jesus comes back and does these things that Daniel says, everlasting righteousness forever, it's just going to be a lot of bad news, a lot of times in a lot of places for a lot of history (laughs) But he has done the most important thing for us that Daniel said he would do. He was atoned for our wickedness. He has atoned for our sin. He is our righteousness. So thank God for that, that when he comes back, we have have him not as a judge, but as a savior. All right, let's pray, folks. Lord, I pray that uh, you would help your people love you through your word, and I pray that you would use what Gabriel said and what Daniel said and what your Holy Spirit says through it to strengthen your people, to nourish them in your truth, and to give them hope. And when this Christmas season comes around, they can, they can say, this really was planned. This really is the one that God sent into the world. This really is the Messiah, Lord, that we would really believe, really hold on to you, and, and have our hearts strengthened through the Holy Spirit by faith. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.